The national debate over transgenderism, and specifically transgenderism in elementary and middle schools, has focused on three things, biology, psychology, and theology. Three questions. What is a woman? What is gender? And who are we? But there's a fourth aspect that's gotten very little attention and maybe playing a larger role in this transgender phenomenon than most people seem to know. Money. Who's paying? When the White House promoted puberty blockers for little kids last week, transgender transitioning for little kids, the study that the White House cited as the scientific basis for this program came from a group called the Trevor Project. The Trevor Project is an LGBT nonprofit organization funded by the donations of individuals and corporations. Now, according to a new report from Chuck Ross at the Washington Free Beacon, turns out two of the corporations that fund the Trevor Project are AbVi and Allergan, pharmaceutical companies that make the drugs and the medical products that are used in the transgender transitioning process. Both companies gave at least $50,000 to the Trevor Project, but the Trevor Project never disclosed the donations. They never disclosed the obvious conflict of interest. The government's argument for transitioning kids rests on a study funded by the companies that most stand to benefit from the government promoting the transitioning of kids. And they all justify the medical experimentation on little kids on the grounds that the interventions will reduce the kid's risk of suicide when they get older. But it turns out that science is totally bunk too. Just a few years ago, a group of scientists, including a physician who participated in clinical research for ABVI, wrote in a letter for the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology that the transgender drugs for kids could cause sterility, sexual dysfunction, and heart disease without any proof of long-term success in suicide prevention. In other words, the White House is peddling child abuse based on bunk science commissioned by a left-wing nonprofit funded by the companies selling the child abuse. We are living in a time of unprecedented upheaval, economic, social, and political. People don't even know what a woman is anymore. And even still, at least one political rule endures. He who pays the piper calls the tune. I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show. Welcome back to the show. My favorite comment yesterday is from Angela Ausmus Gill, who says, a fetus is an item just like a black person used to be considered property. Wow. Yes, this is in reference to this horrible story out of D.C. where five babies, just obviously, undeniably full-term babies, were aborted, meaning they were killed. It was just outright infanticide. There were photos of this, and the authorities are not doing anything to the people who killed the babies, and they're actually prosecuting the people who blew the whistle on it. And, and the contradiction here is that they were referring to the babies as items that were taken out of the home, but they're prosecuting the, the pro-lifer because of the way that she was treating dead bodies. So the babies are bodies for the purpose of, of prosecuting the pro-lifers, 
but the babies are items for the purpose of letting the killers off the hook. It's an obvious contradiction. You say it's similar to treating black people like people for the purposes in the old South of, uh, say, representation in the government, right? The three-fifths compromise, but treating them like property for the purposes of their actual rights. Yes, that's true. And it's why I got in trouble a little while ago for making this point. It's why abortion is not only similar to slavery, it's much worse. If you have a problem with slavery, I think we all do. If you have a problem with slavery, then the issues of abortion are much, much worse. Because while slavery deprives someone of his liberty, abortion deprives someone of his life on the same kind of sick arguments. It's sick. And we've got to articulate these things. We've got to do them ourselves. We've got to, we've got to make this, this argumentation and this persuasion ourselves. Now, when we want to do other things ourselves, like fix up our car, you've got to check out rockauto.com. Right now, go to rockauto.com and write Knowles in their How Did You Hear About Us box. Prices are going through the roof. This is because of rampant inflation, among other things. Every, every time you go to fill up the gasoline in your car, what are you we're probably paying double what you were paying a year ago in some places? Every, the car has been very expensive for me. So what are you going to do? I'm going to give you two scenarios. You can either go to the brick and mortar auto parts store and you can drive over there. That's what, 15 minutes of your time. Then you got to stand and wait in line. Then you got to get peppered with questions by the guy behind the counter. Then he goes behind the counter. He doesn't have the part that you want. He comes back out. He orders it online. You got to drive home. You got to drive back in about a week and you got to pay twice as much. That's one thing you can do if you're a dummy or you can go to rockauto.com, a family company that has served auto parts customers online for 20 years, same prices for pros and do-it-yourselfers, no gimmicks, no wake up at 3 a.m. to save 15%, no. Reliably low prices, super easy to navigate catalog, even I can navigate it. Go to rockauto.com, see all the parts available for your car or truck, and then write Knowles in there, how did you hear about us box, so they know that we sent you. You want to talk about medical corruption. Gosh, we've had medical corruption up to our eyeballs for the past couple of years. Now we're seeing it with this transgender issue for kids, obvious conflicts of interest, a lot of people making money on outright child abuse. But what about the last two years of medical corruption where the the so-called medical authorities have lied to us, have misled us every single turn, shut down our lives, closed our businesses, kept us out of church, had our loved ones dying alone, all because the exalted Dr. Fauci would wake up every morning and based on his whims would decree how we're all going to live. Wear the masks, don't wear the masks. Keep locking down. Lockdowns are bad. Actually, they're good again. On and on and on and on. And everyone believes, everyone, you sweet summer children, you really believe. Maybe not you. If you're listening to this show, you're probably a little more with it than most. Most people believe that COVID's over because they sent Fauci into witness protection, because they've moved on. Now Biden is talking about Ukraine or Biden is talking about some other issue and they've, it's, it's, the COVID mess was hurting Democrats in the polls. It's an election year, so they're not talking about it anymore. And I told you, you know, I hate to say I told you so. You know, I hate to put on my Nolstradamus hat, but I told you it's not going away. They're going to bring COVID back. The moment that it's politically convenient, they're going to do it. Biden never got rid of the national emergency authorization. They still haven't gotten rid of masks on airplanes. They're still holding out the masking for kids under five in New York City. They're still asking you and sometimes telling you outright to get the 57th booster shot. It's not over. They've kept the power that they've been taking for the past two years. And now from the New York Times... The New York Times says COVID-19 is coming back again. Here's how to prepare. This is your checklist from the New York Times for how to prepare for the new wave of COVID-19. 
One, pay attention to COVID indicators in your community. Two, have high quality masks on hand. Three, order home COVID tests sooner rather than later. You need to know if you have a mild cough. Get a booster when you're eligible. I think we're up to, what number are we up to now? 93 or 104? Well, whatever it is, get your booster because of how effective the vaccines are. That's why you need to keep getting your boosters. Get a Pulse oximeter. That's a new one. I didn't know I had to get one of those. Make a plan for antiviral drug treatment, but not ivermectin and not hydroxychloroquine and not anything that any conservative has done. Just get whatever drug Fauci is selling. Have backup plans for social events and travel. This is what you need to do to prepare. And let me just very quickly, no, 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 definitely no. Don't know what that is, but no. No. And no, I think I'm going to keep my plans. I'm not going to do any of this. Like Nancy Pelosi at the State of the Union, not making any plans. COVID is over in the Knowles household. Really, it never began. We had COVID, but we got COVID uh, now twice. It's fine. Glad to say it's fine. We're here. We're living. It's cool. The COVID lockdown measures never existed in the Knowles household. We mocked it from day one. We're going to continue to mock it. Just tell them no. This obviously has nothing to do with science. This has everything to do with politics. This especially has to do with the midterm elections <laughs> that the libs are going to try to gin up COVID again and push the widespread mail-in ballots and give themselves quite an advantage at the ballot box. So uh, no, the, the new wave of COVID may be coming at the New York Times headquarters, not going to be coming here. Fauci isn't giving up though even though the powers that be are trying to put him into witness protection because he's damaging their poll numbers, he's coming out. He's even suggesting the prospect of another lockdown. It depends on utilizing a lockdown in a positive way as opposed to just thinking you're going to hide from the virus forever. We need to utilize it in a positive way. Well, how the hell have you been utilizing it for the last two years? I wish you thought about utilizing them in a positive way two years ago. Pe- people sometimes ask me how Fauci gets away with it. How, how has Fauci stuck in power for 40 years? If you want to find out the full answer to this, we've got a three-part docu-series on Daily Wire. It's one of the most popular products we've ever put out for the Daily Wire audience. Might be number one. It's Fauci Unmasked. Uh, you can get that today at dailywire.com. It's the whole story, what you've never heard before, what you've never seen before. And it's important because they're going to bring this little jerk back. One of the ways that Dr. Fauci has maintained power is that Dr. Fauci's never wrong. He's never wrong because he's always said the right thing in addition to the wrong thing. Because Dr. Fauci holds both sides of every single issue that's ever been put before him. Uh, the clearest example is the masks. Wear the ma- don't wear the masks, wear the masks, sometimes wear the masks, always wear the masks. But it's true of lockdowns too. Dr. Fauci had said lockdowns don't work. Then Dr. Fauci also says lockdowns do work. He's been doing this since the 1980s. He's been doing this for his entire career. So now we're going to have to maybe utilize lockdowns in a positive way. We're probably going to have to utilize those lockdowns in a really positive way for Democrats right before the midterm elections so no one can go out there and vote in person. So we're all going to send in mail-ins and then magically all the Democrats are going to win or at least they're going to stop the tidal wave that the polls show for Republicans right now. Fauci, and this ties back into the point that we were talking about at the top, Fauci has been the most aggressive, the most belligerent on fighting the virus, right? We have to, we cannot take into consideration economic thoughts, uh, national security, our civil rights. No, we have to do everything we can. Keep your foot on the pedal to, to keep fighting the virus. 
But we're not allowed to talk about where the virus came from. We can't talk about China. We spoke to one of the WHO investigators who'd been to Wuhan to investigate how the virus started, and they were prevented from seeing key details and, and from speaking to key people. Why do you think the Chinese government did that? You know, um, I don't want to create any or, or, or mention any, any disparaging remarks about that, but the Chinese are very closed uh, in a way of being very reluctant particularly when you have a disease that evolves in their country, they become extremely secretive, even though there's no reason to be secretive. I think they were very concerned and maybe embarrassed that the virus evolved from their country, but there's nothing wrong with that. So when they see something evolving in their own country, they tend to have a natural reflex of not necessarily covering things up, but not being very open and transparent. I don't listen. I'm not going to criticize China. And actually what he's going to do is cover up for China like he's been doing from the very beginning. That's when he wasn't funding the Wuhan laboratory, which he also lied about. Why, though? Why is the American ruling class, all of them, everywhere, in the media, in entertainment, in the government, and why are they carrying water for China? Because China is buying up all the resources in our country. China owns our debt. China has given crooked deals to Joe Biden, for goodness sakes. The Bidens have made millions of dollars because of China. China has been buying up Hollywood, buying up entertainment, and he who pays the piper calls the tune. Poor Joe Biden. I never thought Joe Biden was particularly in control of this government. Biden is an empty suit. Biden is merely an avatar for the political establishment, the deep state, the administrative state, call it whatever you want. He's always been that way for his entire career, and especially now that his braid is made of pudding and he doesn't know which end is up. But nowhere was this clearer than just, just yesterday. Barack Obama came back to the White House. Everyone was very excited to hear Obama speak. And at the reception, no one wanted to talk to Joe. There he is. Joe's looking around. He's trying to wave and says hello to someone, tries to get their eye. No, and then he turns around. He says, everyone's talking to Obama. Here's Joe. <laughs> Who's going to talk to me, the president of the United States? Each and every one of us at some point in our lives has been this guy at a party. But we don't really know anyone there. And we're sort of, ah, am I, who am I supposed to talk to? Should I go join that conversation? And uh, no, maybe I'll just kind of walk around. And should I go? Maybe it's, it's getting kind of late. Maybe I'll get out of here. Now, the difference, of course, is that Joe Biden does know everyone in that room because he's at the White House. And uh, the other difference is none of us has ever been the president of the United States. When you're the president of the United States, people generally want to talk to you you're a pretty influential and important person. You're never left wandering alone at the party. What this reveals is not merely this awkward, sad, excruciating moment for Joe Biden. It reveals that he's not really where the power is. Everyone wants to talk to Obama. Obama's still wielding a lot of power. But in the White House, does anyone really believe that Joe Biden is the one calling the shots? No. You know how we know that? Because Joe Biden will go out and give speeches, notably on Ukraine. And then five seconds later, the White House will contradict him. And then he will contradict what he had previously said and go along with whatever the White House says. Isn't Joe Biden supposed to be the White House? When we talk about the White House, we're using an object to refer to the president, usually. But no, now we're not. We're, we're using the object to refer to the broad, faceless, nameless power structure 
that doesn't seem to give a damn about what Joe Biden thinks or really to even say hello to him. Democracy, our democracy that we hear so much about from the libs doesn't seem to be all that democratic. It seems like there is more of a permanent kind of bureaucratic apparatus that's actually running the show. And when, even when Joe Biden claims to have gotten 87 gazillion votes, the most votes ever, he's the most popular guy in the world, no one really cares. No one really cares what he has to say. Speaking of our democracy, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that I, your humble host, am a grave threat to democracy. This according to the Yale Daily News. I will be going to Yale uh, next week with Senator Cruz. He and I are going to be doing an episode of our verdict podcast there live. And the Yale Daily News is encouraging people not to attend. According to this opinion column from a freshman at Yale, Cruz and Knowles are speaking, do not go. The argument for why I am, he talks about how uh, Senator Cruz is a threat to democracy because he supported Trump and that's terrible. But I'm a threat to democracy apparently because on, on the anniversary of January 6th, I implored people to remember, quote, the wise men who traveled a great distance for their leader, the true leader of us all in defiance of an unjust government. I, I am not saddened that someone is attacking me in the Yale Daily News. Frankly, that brings me back to my youth. It's been a solid decade since that's happened, and it brings back happy memories. I am upset, however, that these supposedly educated Yaleys don't get my excellent Feast of the Epiphany joke that I told on January 6th about the wise men following their true leader. Okay, that's fine. Uh, the student goes on. Let's be clear. Ted Cruz and Michael Knowles are guilty of chipping away at democracy. Uh, this is a terrible thing. We should care about democracy. Quote, holding fast to democracy starts at the local level by refusing Cruz and Knowles an audience. You have a method of intervention. Buy tickets, but don't attend. That's a genius move. Pay us not to do anything. <laughs> you, you're showing us, hey, by the way, if you send me just Venmo payments right now to Michael Knowles, that'll really show me, that'll teach me a lesson. So, and, and the more money you send, the more of a lesson I'm going to learn, libs. Checks are fine too. You can make them out to cash. That'll, ouch, that'll hurt. That'll sting. Uh, refuse to legitimize the event, he writes. You signal to other Yale students and to the organization that invited them that democracy is non-negotiable and that you refuse to normalize the normal, the abnormal rather. This is what good civic action looks like. There are many ways to do this. I'm only suggesting one. Yale is an influential cultural, political, and economic institution. Yale, this is my favorite line of the whole piece. Yale students flush with that great power, hold the great responsibility to fight for a more just and healthy democracy. Democracy is non-negotiable. Don't, don't go see Cruz and Knowles. Okay. The reason I bring this up is not merely to make fun of the truly grandiose notions that uh, 18-year-olds at Yale have about their place in society and their, their role in America. It is our, we must defend. We 18-year-old Yale students are the great bulwark against tyranny. We must wield our great power of picking a few classes and going to parties on the weekends. We must wield that power to save democracy. But it's because of this word democracy, because they keep using that word democracy, and democracy does not mean, I think, what they think it means. Ted Cruz, whether you like him or not, is a United States senator. He was elected by the people of Texas. He is a 
as representative of American democracy as it gets. I do not hold elected office. I have a podcast. I have a few podcasts. They're pretty popular podcasts. They get lots and lots, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of views, sometimes over a million views. I'm not saying that means that I am a representative of American democracy, but it does mean that there is an audience for this. That's at least some of the American people want to hear what I have to say and want to engage with the kind of reporting that we're bringing here and the, the kind of stories that we're, that we're discussing. That would be, to a smaller degree, representative of American democracy. And I would suspect that Senator Cruz and I are a little more representative of American democracy than an 18-year-old at Yale. So why does the 18-year-old at Yale think that he is the great defender of democracy? Because he's not really talking about democracy. When the libs use the word democracy, what they really mean is liberalism or progressivism or leftism or whatever word you want to use. But this explains how a United States senator speaking is anti-democratic, but some extraordinarily unrepresentative, elite, far-left people are speakers for democracy. This explains how in 2016, when the people vote for Donald Trump, that's an assault on democracy. This explains how in Hungary, when the people vote for Viktor Orban, who is a conservative leader there, that's reported everywhere in the West as an assault on democracy because it has nothing to do with democracy and it has everything to do with liberalism. And I think it has everything to do with the liberal and ultimately then progressive view of the world, which is that there is a clear ending point for history. There is a clear, there is a clear political end that we are going to. The arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. And by justice, the libs mean their political program. And it, this is good for everybody and we should all know it. And so anytime that an election doesn't go the way that liberals want it to, by definition, that election was illegitimate. This is why the libs don't respect the results of the 2016 election. This kid at Yale has a problem with Senator Cruz raising questions about the 2020 election, which was by far the most corrupt election in the last hundred years at the presidential level. This is an election where they changed all the rules right beforehand and where in some states they held the election in violation of the state constitution, like in Pennsylvania. This is an election where there are lots and lots of questions. And yet if you raise questions about that election, you're a threat to democracy. If you raise questions about the 2016 election, which was a perfectly ordinary election, which was not conducted during a global pandemic with widespread mail-in ballots, where the worst thing they could claim occurred in 2016 is that the Russians spent a hundred grand on Facebook ads. The Daily Wire spends that on Facebook ads in what, like two hours? That's nothing compared to what you would see in terms of an actual interfering campaign in an election. And yet they say that's illegitimate. It's only illegitimate because the conservative won. And I can't wait. I look the event. The, this advice isn't really all that wise in the Yale Daily News because the event that we, I've got with Senator Cruz sold out within about two seconds. So uh, it's already sold out. Uh, but I would encourage people to stand in the waiting line. Uh, we're going to get out there. We're going to spread some conservative views to a campus that has gone extremely left, and it's going to be a great deal of fun. Uh, this is this is where the fight is at. This is why what you're seeing in. Virginia and Florida, even in South Dakota now, the political fight to stop the radical left is focusing on the schools. That's where it should be. The schools, the classrooms are a crystal ball to show you what your country is going to look like in 20 years. You know, Drew Clavin just released a new book. It's called The Truth and Beauty. I cannot recommend it enough. 
after years of studying the gospels, trying to find the true meaning of Jesus's words, uh, Drew is ready to share his thoughts on this. And Drew has come to Christianity in a kind of unusual way. He was a liberal, intellectual, literary figure for most of his life. And then he was baptized, I think at age 50. And he, came, he, he, he figured out, he figured his way out of the secular leftist materialism that has wrought so much damage on the world. The book is terrific. It's part memoir. It's part gospel meditation. It's part musing on the romantic poets, these English poets from, from centuries ago. It's a really terrific book. Head on over to Amazon or wherever you buy your books. Order your copy of The Truth and Beauty today. We'll be right back with a lot more. Christy Nome, governor of South Dakota, has just banned critical race theory, not only in K through 12 schools, but at the college level as well. I brought two bills this legislative session that banned critical race theory from being taught in our classrooms in our K-12 schools and another one that banned it in our universities. The legislature supported and passed and I signed into law the university one. So now in South Dakota going forward, critical race theory and cannot be taught in our universities. They killed the K-12 one. So tomorrow I will be signing an executive order to make sure that critical race theory is not taught to our kids in our public school systems too. You go, girl. I like it. It's great. I'm not sure if this has any teeth. As she says, I brought these bills before the legislature and they got shot down. So I'm signing an executive order. Executive orders can be pretty weak. So the, the devil's in the details. I hope it works. But the very fact that Christy Nome is doing this shows you where the energy is on the right. The squishes are going to tell you that Americans don't want to hear about the cultural issues. Stay away from race. Stay away from sex. Just focus on deregulation and free trade and cutting taxes. That, that was the, the common sense view on the right. And it, it's not true. It's not true. We know it's not true because Glenn Youngkin tried to run that campaign and he was losing. And then he turned his campaign onto transgenderism and critical race theory and he won. We know it's not true because the most popular governor in America right now is Ron DeSantis, who's not running on the, oh, let's all kumbaya and get along and forget about the cultural issues type of sloganeering in Florida. He's running on kicking crazy gender theories out of schools, kicking crazy racial theories out of schools, and he's extremely popular because of it, both in Florida and nationally. And Christy Nome is a weather vane. I, I'm not saying this to insult Christy Nome. Good honor. I'm glad that she's, she's fighting for these policies. But C- Christy Nome infamously refused to protect women's sports in college. She, she had a bill come before her where, she, where the bill was going to ban men from competing in women's sports, and she shot it down. She later reversed herself on that, but she shot it down because, who knows, because maybe she didn't want to lose some sports competitions in South Dakota. Because, I don't know, again, I'm just speculating, maybe she got some calls from corporate sponsors of hers who didn't like that she was going up against transgenderism. I don't know. But for whatever reason, she shot it down. This should have been a slam dunk, clear case issue. And she shot it down. Then she got a ton of political blowback and her political career, at least at the national level, was almost over. And so she reversed herself. You saw this with Asa Hutchinson, governor, Republican governor in Arkansas. 
Asa Hutchinson had a bill about banning the transgenderism for kids come before him. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that. If a kid is being transgendered right now, I don't want to stop that process. Why? Maybe it's just because he's an idiot. Maybe it's because he's, I'm not even saying he has a low IQ. I'm saying maybe it's because he's a moral idiot who has no sense of right and wrong and good and bad and is willing to, to stand by child abuse and actually encourage it and applaud it. Maybe that's why, or maybe there's a more cynical answer. Maybe it's because there are some big corporate donors in Arkansas, and maybe he got a phone call, and they said, hey, Governor Hutchinson, back off the transgender stuff, and he caved. I don't know. It's happened to a lot of politicians before him. Wouldn't be surprised, surprised if that were the case for Hutchinson as well. Very often, always really, it's the case that he who pays the piper calls the tune. And so you've got all of the entrenched business interests, all of the media interests, all of the technology interests, everything is pushing these radical theories. However, there is one little glimmer of hope, which is that the people hate this crap. They especially hate the transgender stuff, and they especially hate critical race theory, and they hate it because it's no longer even just affecting them in the boardrooms, it's affecting their little kids in elementary schools, and, th- and that's just a bridge too far. And so when we say he who pays the piper calls the tune, the corporations who are throwing billions and billions of dollars around, that's, that's a big deal. That's going to influence things. The voters still have some say in America, And as long as the voters still have some say, the politicians are maybe going to be a little bit responsive. I don't want to have too negative a view here or too cynical a view of what Kristi Noem is doing. Whatever her motivations, I'm glad she's doing it. It's a good sign coming up for the midterms. Now, the liberals are claiming that this is not an issue. Frankly, critical race theory is not even being taught in schools. You're seeing this not just from the honest and overt liberals on MSNBC and CNN. You're seeing it even from the fake Republicans that they bring on. Someone like Anna Navarro. Anna Navarro bills herself as a Republican strategist. I'm not sure when she's ever won a political campaign in her life or even when she's really worked on a campaign. But Republican strategist, just like Democrat strategist, when you see that on TV, usually that means unemployed person giving an opinion. <laughs> and so they don't know what to say. So they say, you're a strategist, okay? All right. And that happens to a lot of people. Uh, but Uh, She's not an actual Republican strategist. She's just a fake Republican who goes on TV to put the Republicans in their place. She goes on TV to say the liberals are right about everything. And so Anna Navarro just tweeted out repeatedly, repeatedly, five, six times, CRT is not being taught to children. CRT is not being taught to children. CRT is not being taught to children. My answer to her is, oh, great. So then the bills banning CRT in kids' classrooms, they're not a big deal. Great. It's not? Okay, fine. Anna, I take you at your word. Maybe. I te- Let's just go with the hypothetical. CRT is not being taught to kids. So then you should have no problem with the bills that are banning it. I made this point to Ethan Behrman, who's a liberal friend of mine, goes on TV a lot. Ethan, I, I had him on this show to talk about the Florida Parental Rights and Education Bill. I said, Ethan, you're a sensible guy. Why on earth would you oppose this bill. And he said, Michael, it's just, it's a non-issue. Sexual ideology of any sort is not being taught to kids in elementary schools, in preschool through third grade. And I said, okay, great. Well, then what's the big deal about banning it? If it's not happening, then it's a non-issue. And he said, well, and he, he realized the contradiction. He realized how he had just undermined his own argument. He said, well, but now maybe it will be taught. I said, well, no, I actually think it won't be taught now because there's a bill outlawing it. And that, that was the stumbling block. 
for him. So out of, on the one hand, the libs are saying critical race theory is not being taught to kids. And then out of the other side of their mouth, they're saying, and it's a good thing that it is. And, and it's a big issue because you, you've now got little kids being told that they are evil because of their skin color. Because they're white, they're evil. And they're, they're going through exercises in elementary schools where they have to line up on a, a, on a, a measure of privilege. The whitest kids are the most privileged and therefore the most evil. And the blackest kids are the least privileged and therefore the most virtuous. You've, you've got exercises in elementary schools where kids have to apologize because they're white. And this stuff is so distasteful and preposterous, even for adults. I think, I don't know if it's because of my Sicilian heritage, because I've got a little touch of swarthiness to me. I am completely immune to white guilt. I just don't feel it. I know that white liberals feel it. I know that some white squish conservatives feel it. I don't feel it at all. I don't think that people ought to apologize for their skin color. I just, it doesn't, doesn't do anything for me. But I know that a lot of, a lot of conservatives, they'll just tolerate it when they inevitably get the critical race theory trainings in the corporate sphere, or even in their universities, they'll just tolerate it. We're not going to tolerate it in elementary schools. This is a uniting issue. It unites Republicans with a lot of Democrats. It unites white people with black people who don't want this kind of racial ideology with Hispanic people, with, with everyone else too. It's a big winner. And it was one of the real knocks on Ketanji Jackson, who's the, the judge who's going to be the next justice on the Supreme Court. The Republicans are almost certainly not going to be able to stop her. Her, her nomination has now left the Judiciary Committee. It's going before the entire Senate. But, but Ketanji Jackson is the most radical judge that we'll ever have had in the history of the Supreme Court. She has praised the founder of critical race theory, one of the founders, Derrick Bell. She has praised the 1619 Project, which pushes the ridiculous lie that the American Revolution was fought, fought to defend slavery. Even the New York Times doesn't defend that thesis anymore. And she's got a weird record on pedos, where she let pedos and child rapists off the hook, and she gave them much lower sentences. So she's, she's got a really, really bad record and Dick Durbin, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, just basically apologized to her for the horrible GOP attacks, the, vi- the utterly vile things that Republicans have said about her during this process. On the whole, my Republican colleagues, starting with my ranking member, Senator Grassley, treated the nominee with dignity and respect. They promised not to turn this confirmation process into a, quote, circus, and most kept that promise. Some, however, did not. Instead, they repeatedly interrupt and badgered Judge Jackson and accused her of vile things in front of her parents, her husband, and her children. There was table pounding, some literal, from a few of my colleagues. They repeated discredited claims about Judge Jackson's record. They impugned her motives and questioned her candor. One all but called her a liar. They even suggested that Judge Jackson a mother to two wonderful daughters, quote, endangers children. Judge Jackson is a better person than me. She stayed calm and collected. She showed dignity, grace, and poise. It is unfortunate that some moments in our hearing came to that. But if there is one positive to take away from these attacks on her, it is that the nation saw the temperament of a good, strong person ready to serve on the highest court of the land. Can you imagine politicians smearing a Supreme Court nominee before that nominee's children and spouse and parents? Can you imagine? I can't fathom. Oh, wait a second. Wasn't so long ago (laughs) that Brett Kavanaugh 
was nominated for the court. And by the way, the treatment of Kavanaugh and the treatment of Jackson are 100% completely different, utterly incomparable, different in kind. The vile things that Democrats said about Brett Kavanaugh were completely without evidence. They were based on things that he allegedly did 20, 30, 40 years prior at high school parties again, have to emphasize this, with no evidence at all, brought by completely uncredible lunatic women. (laughs) Like, uh, what's her, what was the, Julie Swetnick, who never met Kavanaugh, who was being represented by some pimp lawyer who's now a felon who's going behind bars, Michael Avenatti. He was the man that the Democrats briefly wanted to nominate for president, but then, then now he's behind bars and it's, it's, it's not impossible to run for president from behind bars. Eugene Debs did it, but it's, it's not easy. Or Christine Blasey Ford, who changed her story a hundred times. And, and again, there's no evidence that she ever even met Brett Kavanaugh. Those, they, they called Kavanaugh a gang rapist based on nothing. With Katanji Jackson, what were the attacks on her? The senators just read her own court opinions. They just read her own record. And they deduced from that that she is a threat to children. She is a threat to children. She let pedos off the hook. She is a threat to children. She let not even just people consuming child porn off the hook. That's bad enough. She let actual child rapists off the hook. And we covered this on the show yesterday. And then one of them goes out and tries to rape another woman. Well, he should have been in prison, but he wasn't in prison because Katanji Jackson let him off the hook. And, and by the way, these, the attacks on Katanji Jackson were not, were not irrelevant to her work as a judge. Forget about reading her actual record. Obviously, that's fair game. But when Marsha Blackburn asks Katanji Jackson, hey, what's a woman? That is very relevant to her work as a judge. One, if she doesn't know the answer, then she's so stupid that she must have gone to Harvard two times. But two, she's going to have to adjudicate cases that are, that, that, rest on women's rights. Things like Title IX. If you don't know what a woman is, you can't adjudicate that sort of thing. When, when you ask Judge Jackson her view on natural rights, she said she didn't have a view of natural rights. That's going to affect her jurisprudence. The treatment of Judge Jackson was completely fair, completely incomparable to what happened to Brett Kavanaugh. And she is going to be the furthest left member of the court we've ever had. To quote a great man, sad. Speaking of vile things, not the, vi- the vile things said about Katanji Jackson, but genuinely vile things. This might be, this is one of my least favorite told you so's that I've, I've ever had the displeasure of, of doing. The conservatives are always accused of slippery slope arguments. Oh, you, you don't want to go along with some radical change in society because you think that some crazy, absurd thing is going to happen as a consequence of it down the line. That's a slippery slope fallacy, conservatives. And every time, every time that we predict some other degrading development will occur in our society as a result of some decision occurring right now, every time we predict the slippery slope, it comes true. We predicted that if you change the definition of marriage, Soon enough, you're going to change the definition of sex and the human person. And obviously, the whole definition of the family, and you're going to get transgenderism. Obviously, that happened. We predict that if you legalize abortion to any degree, you're going to go from not merely a tepid defense of of legal abortion, but a a full-throated endorsement. You're going to go from safe, legal, and rare abortion to abortion on demand without apology. Shout it from the rooftops. That happened. One thing we predicted was that if you lift the traditional social and political 
restrictions on sexual activity and you redefine marriage and you redefine the whole family and you say that now sexual morality just amounts to if it feels good, do it, you're going to have people not just having sex with each other, whichever consenting adult you want, not even just having sex with kids, which the grooming thing is on the rise and no one can deny it, you're going to have people having sex with animals. That's what we said. And everyone laughed at us and they said, oh, you're you're a tinfoil, hat-wearing, kooky, crazy Alex Jones person. Daily Mail headline today, bestiality brothels are, quote, spreading through Germany, warns campaigner as abusers turn to sex with animals as a lifestyle choice. Bestiality brothels are spreading through Germany faster than ever thanks to a law that makes animal porn illegal, but sex with animals legal, a livestock officer has warned. Madeline Martin told the Frankfurter Rundschau that current laws uh, for protecting animals from predatory zoophiles, that means people who shtup animals, uh, are, are, are not working because these people are increasingly defending it as a lifestyle choice. Even people listening to this story right now, they might say, oh, that's crazy. That's tabloid madness. No, there's no way that you could, you can't possibly defend having sex with animals as a lifestyle choice. There's no way to possibly normalize that. These are the people who all said no one would ever normalize pedophilia, which is occurring right now. They're even trying to change the word for pedophile to minor attracted person. They're trying to reduce the penalties for pedophiles. Actually, our next Supreme Court justice did just that when she was planning policy and when she was sitting on the bench. They say there's no way you could ever do it with animals. Why? Why? Well, the argument is because animals can't consent. Sure, kids can't consent. And we're now, not not only are people reducing the stigma for having sex with children or consuming child abuse images, now we're saying that children should be allowed to lop off their genitals. If a a 16 or 17-year-old can't consent to having sex with a 20 or 21-year-old, and that's what the law says, I think in most places that's what the law says, why on earth could a six-year-old consent to, to making not just a temporary sexual choice, but a permanent sexual choice to fundamentally destroy his body chemistry and sterilize himself? Why could that happen? I don't know, but the libs are pushing that. The White House is pushing that. But furthermore, why does consent matter in our dealings with animals? We eat them. We, I, don't, I don't think the animal consents to be eaten, does it? We skin them and wear their skin as our clothing. We do everything we do with animals is non Even when you're just ordinarily sort of shepherding the animals, growing fur on their growing, growing wool on the sheep and doing all sorts of things, it's not consensual. You're not getting a contract from the sheep. You're not getting a contract from the cow. We send them to slaughterhouses. So if we can kill the animals, if we can put them in terrible conditions, if we can wear their skin as our clothing, why can't German perverts shtup the animals? That seems less, if we're saying that rape is a, one of the most grievous crimes, but less grievous perhaps than murder, then why, why are we allowed to cut up the animals and chop them up and eat them and have them on our, our dinner plate, but German perverts aren't allowed to shtup them? You can't do it. You can't, there's no argument from just consent that is going to get you there. Okay. And this, Unfortunately, on the left, absolutely, but even on the right, you've seen people distill all morality about all things, not just sex, but everything, 
down to consent. Well, if, if adults, if consenting adults want to do it, that's fine. And it's not the government's role to stop them from doing it. This is why you're seeing people try to legal, liberalize drug laws. This is why you're seeing people liberalize laws against mutilations, uh, against suicide, for goodness sakes. Well, if people consent, it's all fine. It's not. It's not. There's, consent is an important moral consideration, but there are other moral considerations too. What we're seeing in Germany now, do not be surprised when Nostradamus predicted that this sort of thing was coming to America. Speaking of the sexual revolution, we have a very important update from the sexual revolution. Uh, the, the other day, Blake Masters tweeted out in response to some leftist provocation. He said, not everything has to be gay. And he's wrong about that. Everything has to be gay. Everything is going gay. You know this. It has, it has to be because the sexual revolution has to be complete. <laughs> it has to. This is why Disney's going gay and tra- not even just gay, it's going trans. Everything has to partake of this, including Harry's razors. That's why we started a razor company, Jeremy's razors, including Gillette razors, actually, for that matter, including every company. We're starting Pride Month a little early this year. Pride Month is in June and October. Now we're starting it in April. Every company is going to start changing their colors to the rainbows. And this includes cookies. Not only, not only are they turning the frickin' frogs gay, they are turning the frickin' Oreo cookies gay. We're all one family. I know you come from halfway around the world so we can have a better life. But I am, here we go, he's going to, what is he going to say? I am. I think you're ready. Gay. He wants, but now the mother says, I think you're ready. Who's that at the door? I don't know, because the whole family's there. A little girl eats an Oreo cookie. That's the product placement in the movie. Are you ready? Are you ready? So the dad's there. It's not like he's got to tell the dad. The mom's there. It's not like he's got to tell the mom. The sister was there. She just ate the cookie. And then we have some other extended families coming in. Oh, and there's grandma. I guess grandma doesn't know that this young man is gay. You get the point. We can wrap it there. The radicalism of the, is not just the gay cookies. It's going to give Daily Wire a new opportunity. Oreos has gone gay. That's why we're so pleased to, we're so excited to unveil Shaporios, the new product of Daily Wire confections. Do you want cookies without any sexual indoctrination? Well, sign up and get Shaporios today. <laughs> That's, I want, Ben, if you're listening, Jeremy, I want some royalties for Shaporios. We're going to sell a lot of them. I don't just bring it up to plug whatever new product we're going to have. It's the, uh, it's the perpetual revolution. It's the fact that even coming out once is not enough. You've got to come out of the closet again and again and again. Just getting this one law changed, it's not enough. You've got to do it again and again. Just, just winning on this one issue, pushing this issue. No, you've got, it's the perpetual revolution. There is no end to how far the left wants to take this country. It's not just transing the 20-year-olds. It's transing the 10-year-olds. It's transing the 5-year-olds. There's no It's not just abortion in the first trimester. It's abortion up until the moment of birth. There's no end unless we conservatives learn that very important word, no. I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show. See you tomorrow.
If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Andrew Clavin Show, and The Matt Walsh Show. The Michael Knowles Show is produced by Ben Davies. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Supervising producer, Mathis Glover. Production manager, Pavel Vidovsky. Editor and associate producer, Danny D'Amico. Associate producer, Justine Turley. Audio mixer, Mike Coromina. And hair and makeup by Cherokee Hart. Michael Knowles Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2022. Today on the Ben Shapiro Show, Barack Obama arrives back at the White House and the media drool all over themselves. And meanwhile, Joe Biden is just walking around in the background and no one wants to talk to them. That's today on the Ben Shapiro Show. Give it a listen. Mm-hmm.